this is the last day of unleavened bread, as we've heard, and I hope it has been a fulfilling feast for you, as we've been filled with unleavened bread, and hopefully filled with the bread of life as well, on a daily basis. During these days, we often talk a lot about the Israelites and their journeys and their trials and their challenges, their ups and their downs. And as we start out this afternoon, let me ask a question. What was God really trying to do with the Israelites? What was he really aiming for? What was his purpose and goal as he brought them through the wilderness? There can be a lot of divergent opinions Speaking of thinking about the past and some things that have happened in the past, I was recalling the last uh, service I had in our former association, and it was uh, 25 years ago, and I think it was the last day of Unleavened Bread, if I'm not mistaken, a time when there was a lot of turmoil in the church, a lot of changes going on. Many people disturbed and confused by changes, others rejoicing, and the speaker used the wanderings of the Israelites to defend the changes, saying we have to trust, even when it doesn't make any sense where we're going. Taking the church into apostasy as God was giving them the law? No, I don't think so. That was not the lesson. That's crazy that as if God would take them away from his law through the wilderness. There's another theory, sort of, of what God uh, was doing. This is from Richard Dawkins, the famed evolutionist who looks at the God of the Old Testament as a megalomaniac. He said in his book, The God Delusion, the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. So right away, you kind of get a sense of where he stands on this. Jealous, and he said, the God of the Old Testament is jealous and proud of it. A petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak. A vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser. A misogynist, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent, Bully. You know, someday Richard Dawkins is going to come face to face with the God of the Old Testament. You think he's going to use a few different descriptions? When he understands and when he learns that Christ died for him too, he just doesn't know any better right now. He will have an opportunity. But no, the Eternal was not taking the Israelites through the wilderness, to be cruel and capricious and unpleasant. Was he trying to kill them? That's what a number of those people who were there thought as the story unfolded, as events happened. But no, he wasn't trying to kill them. What was he doing? The Eternal gave them laws. He gave them teachers. He allowed them to be tested. He delivered them from trials, as we heard this morning. And everything was specifically geared to show them there were two ways of life, not many, not a multitude of options, but two ways, and they were to choose the right way and go all out to pursue it. They were to give it their all. And isn't that what God is doing with us? Guiding our lives, guiding our steps, putting us sometimes in situations. If we're willing to, if we're willing to submit ourselves to him and our lives to him, he puts us in situations to show us there are only two paths and to encourage us, to inspire us, to prod us sometimes to teach us, sometimes even correct us, 
with strong correction to teach us we really only want to go his way. It's really the only way. And to seek it with all of our hearts. Isn't that what he's doing? Cutting through all the chaos and all the confusion, you know, in this day and age, so many people think there, there's so many paths. I recall a years and years ago when we were explaining a, to a band director of our, ours how we wouldn't be able to play on the Sabbath and just a, a brief description of, you know, what we believed. And his conclusion was, well, there are many ways to heaven, many paths to heaven. And uh, so, you know, he, he, underst- he, was, he was understanding of us, but my brothers and sisters and I walked away thinking, no, actually there aren't. And, and we're not going to heaven. I mean, there are lots of things wrong with that. <laughs> but, you know, is there a Buddhist way? Is there a Confucius way? Is there a atheist way? Is there a Catholic way? Are there many ways to life? No. And God is helping us to see that, and he's teaching us to go with it with everything we've got. Appreciate the sermonette that we had just a few minutes ago where he was talking about bringing every thought into captivity because that really is what's required. Let's look at a couple of examples as we begin about going all out, about giving our all to God. The lesson, a lesson from the days of unleavened bread. Exodus chapter 14, we have been here before, but I just want to pull a little bit of a lesson here as we we think about these days. The first trial that they went through as they were coming out of Egypt, as we heard earlier, he allowed them to be boxed into a corner with only two directions to go, didn't he? God orchestrated this. He could have led them to an open plain where they could have scattered like quail, you know, through the, through the valley. But no, he boxed them in between the mountains and the sea and the Egyptians behind for a specific reason. Exodus chapter 14 and verse 9. So the Egyptians pursued them, all the horses and chariots of Pharaoh, his horsemen and his army, and overtook them. And verse 10, when Pharaoh drew near, the children of Israel lifted their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians marched after them. So they were very afraid, and the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. What were their options? Either go back to Egypt to to slaughter, to death, to slavery, or to go forward somehow to life, to peace, to everything good they wanted. But God was saying, to do that, you'll have to trust me. You'll have to go all out for me. That's the only way this works. He allowed them to be in a situation where there are only two choices. Why? Because that's the reality of life. Isn't it amazing today that even in one of the most basic facts of life, people are trying to expand the binariness of gender and saying there are any multitude of choices of gender. No, there are two genders. And when we look at the way of life, there are two ways of life. There's God's way and there's Satan's way. There's the give way, there's the get way. There's the way of life and the way of death. There's the way of God and the way of Satan. Only two choices. And he was forcing them to see that. And he was forcing them to make a choice. Isn't that what he does with us as well? Let's turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 30 and verse 15. Deuteronomy chapter 30 and verse... 15, he's talking, I know, many years later down the road, the next generation, but it's the same message. He said in Deuteronomy 30 and verse 15, See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil, 
in that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, to keep his commandments, his statutes, his judgments, that you may live and multiply. And the Lord your God will bless you in the land which you go to possess. Why did God say this? Why did he force people to make a choice? Because he hates them? Because he wants their lives to be miserable? Or because he loves them? And he wanted them to choose the right way. And he wanted to give them life. And every good gift. Verse 17, if your heart turns away, so you do not hear and are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I announce to you today the reality of life. He said, I'm not making this up arbitrarily. This is just what happens. When you turn away from my way of life, you will surely perish. You shall not prolong your days in the land which you cross over the Jordan to go in and possess. Verse 19, I call heaven and earth as witnesses today against you that I've set before you life and death, blessing, cursing. Therefore, choose life that both you and your descendants may live. Verse 20, that you may love the Lord your God, that you may obey his voice and you may cling to him for he is your life and the length of your days. And that you may dwell in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to give them. God was imploring that generation to get in tune with him and his path that leads to life and peace and harmony and love and a future. Christ taught the same concept, didn't he? Mark chapter 12, verse 28, Then one of the scribes came, and having heard them reasoning together, perceiving that he had answered them well, he asked them, Which is the first commandment of all? And Jesus answered him, The first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He's quoting from The Old Testament, he's quoting from where we were just reading in the the Pentateuch, the books of Moses, and verse 30. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. Is there anything not included in loving God with all our heart, all our mind, all our strength, everything we've got? going all out, giving him our all. That's the first commandment. Notice in Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8 and verse 34. Jesus also explained. Mark 8 verse 34. When he had called the people to himself with his disciples, he said to them, whoever desires to come after me, whoever wants to be a follower of mine, Whoever wants to be called a Christian, let him deny himself. Let him take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. He said, if we want to be his, we have to follow him and deny ourselves putting God above everything, even our own lives, our own wishes, our own needs, our own desires, our own opinions held nothing back, nothing held back, nothing withdrawn from God. Brethren, how do we do this? How do we really give God our all? What does it mean? What does it look like? Well, first of all, maybe a little explanation of what it doesn't look like. Because sometimes we can get confused about what going all out means, what giving God our all means. Sometimes we can, we can try to do just, well, maybe I just need to do more and more and more on my own strength. And we call that perfectionism. You know, some people are beset with perfectionism. That's, that's different. Some struggle with that, where, where they are continually racked with doubt and fear that they're not doing enough. And some of us struggle with that. I'm not talking about that. 
I'm not just trying to put another guilt trip on on, uh, those of you who already are striving to be perfect in that way and you just need to do more and more and more and more. No, that's, 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 that's not the way that God wants us to look at it. Uh, 2 Timothy 1.7, Paul said, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but a spirit of power, love, and a sound mind. It's not about just doing more and more and more on our own strength, as we heard from Mr. Strain this morning. We are to become spiritually mature and complete and full-grown and zeroed in on what God wants, asking Him to guide us. He's our strength. I'm also not talking about trying to outrighteous one another. I'm not talking about just trying to do more and more so we can impress others. And I know we, we don't say it that way. We don't think of it that, that uh, openly. Um, but sometimes that can happen. Sort of look at me, how spiritual I am. And if we're not careful, we can fall into that. The Bible says not to compare ourselves among ourselves. It's not a show, it's not a look at me type of thing. It's also not just about personality. Sometimes we can confuse zeal, spiritual zeal with personality. Can't we? You know, a zealous person may not always be the most extroverted. If you have a a work behind the scenes personality, can you go all out for God? With your personality? Can you give all with your personality? Absolutely. If you are extroverted and very gregarious, can you give your all to God? Absolutely. Both of them go far beyond just personality, don't they? It's really about our heart, our mind, what we're doing with what we've been given, conforming our thoughts and our ways and our walk and our words and our actions to god's will so what does it look like and how can we apply it in our lives i'd like to in the remaining time look at several examples of individuals from the exodus story and i've i've chosen good examples in in one sense some heroes of the exodus story it's kind of sad actually when you think about it there aren't a whole lot of good examples It's kind of a limited choice. But the ones who are, are very powerful and we can learn a lot from them. Let's talk about Moses first. Moses was a fascinating example of a man of God. He was raised in the court of Pharaoh. You know, as a young baby, he was given up by his parents and and taken in by uh, one of those in the royal court, a princess of Pharaoh and raised in the court and became rich and famous, a powerful general and uh, a man of of renown. But when we look at Exodus chapter 3, let's turn over there. It appears he struggled with some insecurities. Moses, this great man of God, struggled with insecurities. Exodus chapter 3 and verse 7, notice, here he is out, has been out in the... uh, you know, shepherding a sheep for 40 years after he had become this great general. And now he was being called by God and he was being given a commission by God to lead the children of Israel out of Egypt. And notice, this is at the burning bush, a fascinating story in itself, Exodus chapter 3 and verse 7. The Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians to bring them up from that land to a good and large land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites and Hittites and Amorites and Perizzites and Hivites and Jebusites. Now, therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them come now verse 10 therefore I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people the children of Israel out of Egypt and Moses immediately said right on right I'm your man I can do it 
After all, I've been a general. I've been, you know, in Pharaoh's household. I, I know, hey, God, I've got this. I know how to handle tough people, you know. I know this guy. He didn't say that. Moses said to God, verse 11, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Verse 12. So he said, verse 12, I will certainly be with you, and this shall be a sign to you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. But Moses had more questions. Verse 13, And Moses said to God, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? So God <clears throat> explained uh, his name and what he, would, what he should say. And this went back and forth and back and forth. And finally in Exodus chapter 4 and verse 1, Then Moses answered and said, But suppose they will not believe me or listen to my voice. Suppose they say the Lord has not appeared to you. What if they don't listen to me? This sounds like a man who was was struggling a little bit, perhaps, and, and did not have it all together, and maybe had a little bit of insecurity. Doesn't sound like someone who had a lot of vanity about his abilities. Or maybe he had, and maybe that had been worked out those 40 years. I don't know. Maybe shepherding sheep for 40 years would, you know, really work out and, and humble someone. I worked with sheep for four months, and it humbled me. <laughs> I know. But that's another story. He was, he was not quite sure of if this was going to work. And then verse 10, Then Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent, neither before nor since I have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. I have a speech impediment. I'm not a great speaker. I'm not going to inspire those people. They're not going to follow me. And God, the eternal, got a little exasperated, as you know the story. And he replied, you know, it's not about who you are, Moses. It's about who I am. I'm going to take care of it. The point is Moses needed encouragement. He wasn't superhuman. It wasn't all his training in Egypt that got him through this. But as we look at the story, it was his willingness to submit to God and let God work through him and with him and getting to know God and understanding God and having faith in God and having a relationship with God. And that's what gave him confidence. You know, these days a big deal is made about self-confidence. Whenever you watch an interview of an athlete, they just exude self-confidence, don't they? And that's spoken of very highly. And if they don't, Nobody wants them on their team. That is supposedly what's required for success. If only you believe in yourself. You know, brethren, if we only believe in ourselves, we're going to hit brick wall after brick wall, just like Peter did. He had a lot of faith in himself, and he wound up denying Christ, didn't he? Our goal is to grow in confidence in God and let him work in our life. The point is that God encouraged Moses. You can do it because I'll help you. I'll be with you. As we heard in the sermon this morning, help is available. And we can see that Moses had that relationship with, with God. And Moses did a, amazing things. And he, he went forward in impossible situations. Because God was working through him. So let's look at Exodus 14 in that light. Exodus 14 and verse 13. Back to the Red Sea. And Moses came to the point where he was willing to hold nothing back. Where he gave his all in obedience and faith to God because he understood God's power. He understood it was God working not himself. So Exodus 14 and verse 
13. We read this before, how they were backed up against the sea. And dropping down to verse 13, Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. Stand still. See the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall see again no more forever. The Lord will fight for you, and you shall hold your peace. What a tremendous statement of faith. And you know what is even more remarkable? Moses didn't yet know how God was going to work it out. We know that because in the very, at least we can suppose that in the very next verse, the Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the children of Israel to go forward. So it doesn't appear that Moses had yet the plan, the whole plan, but he trusted God and he knew God had a plan. So convicted. Even though he was a man that sometimes struggled with insecurity. You know, sometimes our young people can struggle with insecurities. As they grow, it's a time of developing your identity and, and sometimes being unsure about themselves. Sometimes you can feel as a young person that everybody else has it all together. Everybody else, you know, seems to not have any problems. And I'm the only one that sometimes is unsure about myself. What's wrong with me? But you know, young people, you can be encouraged by the fact that this man of God, this man that we look up to so highly and was such an instrumental figure in the plan of God that God used, he himself struggled. Don't be ashamed if sometimes you are unsure of yourself. All of us sometimes can have insecurities where we feel like we can't do it. Whatever is in front of us, we, we can't do it. We don't have what it takes. Well, guess what? We don't. So when we get to that point, congratulations. We're ready for God to work with us. When we understand we don't have what it takes, that's when God can start doing it in and through us. We, we just have to set our minds that we're going to go all in for Him and let Him take control of our life. Let's look at another individual, or actually two individuals. Number two, Joshua and Caleb. Joshua and Caleb. I know you, you knew that I was going to pick them already. Uh, <clears throat> two other heroes of the Exodus story. Joshua and Caleb. Let's, let's look again in Exodus 14 and verse 10 because this actually maybe relates a little bit to Joshua and Caleb even though they're not mentioned. We already read how back in verse uh, 8 and 9 the Egyptians were pursuing. They drew near in verse 10. The children of Israel cried out, he said, is this not, verse 12, the word that we told you in Egypt, saying, let us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than that we should die in the wilderness. Now, let's think this through for a moment. Was this, okay, there were about two or three million people there. Was this all of those people suddenly rising up together and saying these exact words together? In unison? It doesn't seem like it. But it does seem like there were some rotten apples, weren't there? There were some people who, who right away were challenging Moses and were saying, look, you're our problem, Moses. You got us into a no-win situation. And their words spread and caused a negative spirit among the, 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 much of the congregation. But were there any in that group who were simply sitting back and watching Moses? Were there some children of Israel there who were sitting back, who were scared, who were frightened, out of their wits probably, why wouldn't you be? The mountains on the side, the Egyptians behind you, they're not happy, you just took all their stuff like we heard about this morning, 
this sea in, the, in, in front of you. But were there not some people, I submit to you that there were at least two people who were standing there and who were looking and watching and learning from the example of Moses. Why? Because, let's turn over to Numbers chapter 13, we find almost the exact same situation. Numbers chapter 13 and verse 26. We know the story, but we'll just hit the highlights. Verse 1. Now the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the children of Israel from each tribe of their fathers. You shall send a man, every one a leader among them. So he chose twelve, and they went, and they saw the land. They came back, verse 26. Uh, they came back to Moses and Aaron, all the congregation of the children of Israel, to the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh, and brought back word to them and to all the congregation, showed them the fruit of the land. They told them, We went to the land you sent us to, and it truly flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. Nevertheless, the people who dwell in the land are strong. The cities are fortified and large. And moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there, the Amalekites, etc. But verse 30, verse 30, Caleb, and later on in the story, we, we find out Joshua is with him. Caleb recognized something was happening already. And he quieted the people before Moses. And he said, let us go up at once. And take possession, for we are well able to overcome it. Now, did Caleb know how it would happen? Did Caleb know exactly how God would overcome the giants? No. Did Moses know exactly how God would overcome the Red Sea? No. Apparently, Joshua and Caleb were of the same mind as, as Moses and probably learned from his example and watching him and growing through it. And we know the story that those ten men and all of those twenty and upward were not allowed to go into the city, into the promised land. But verse 24 of Numbers 14 But my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit in him and has followed me fully, I will bring into the land where he went and his descendants shall inherit it. Because he followed me fully. And Joshua as well. Joshua and Caleb got it. They recognized there were only two choices. There weren't many choices. And they had to keep going forward. It's a mirror image of what Moses did. They learned. Brethren, we are entering perilous times, as we heard this morning. And many in our world who know nothing about what we know are yet worried about the future. There was a Gallup poll that was, was taken not long ago entitled America's Americans stress worry and anger intensified in 2018 here's what it the conclusion was even as the economy roared more Americans were stressed angry and worried last year than they have been at most points during the past decade asked about their feelings the previous day the majority of Americans 55% in 2018 said they had experienced stress during a lot of the day previous day nearly half 45 percent said they felt worried a lot of the day the previous day and more than one in five 22 percent said they felt anger a lot can you imagine almost a quarter of people polled said they felt a lot of anger the previous day than when they were polled and 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 half worried a lot and uh, stressed a lot. Each of these figures matches or tops previous highs in the U.S. Additionally, Gallup's latest annual update on the world's emotional state shows Americans were more likely to be stressed and worried than much of the world. 
In fact, the 55% of Americans who experienced stress was one of the highest rates out of the 143 countries studied, and it beat the global average 35% by a full 20 percentage points. It sounds like we in the U.S. need to move somewhere else, don't we? This is not a healthy place to be mentally. It's, you know, we are not immune to this, are we? Many people in this world, are, are the stress and the worry is ratcheting up. Again, some, sometimes our young people, the next generation, they look at what's happening and, and what's, what's there to look forward to. And where is this world going? And our encouragement to you young people is, like Joshua and Caleb did, look around you and look at those who have been walking courageously God's way of life around you today as examples, around you in the Bible when you read. We can be encouraged by that. We all need to key in to, to those who have gone before and have been courageous. It's, it's interesting. I, it just seems like I've run across this passage a number of times lately. Acts 21, verse 10. I'll just refer to it when Paul was about to go to Jerusalem. And over and over he was being told, it says, by those who were in the Spirit, even prophets, that when you go to Jerusalem... You're going to be bound, and you're going to be delivered to the Gentiles, and and uh, and people warning him not to go. You know, this would have been a great time to see how the weather was in Tarsus, don't you think? You know, not to go to Jerusalem. And yet he said, "How how do you? Why are you breaking my heart?" As these people were weeping and crying and telling him, "Don't go to Jerusalem." He said, I'm ready to go. I'm ready to, to lay down my life. I'm ready to die. If that's God's will. Paul is such a courageous example. And, and we can look around, whether it's in the Bible or whether it's Mr. Armstrong, who labored and labored and labored and worked so hard. And, and all of us, virtually all of us are here in part because of that man's labor. And Dr. Meredith, who labored for years and decades and gave his life for this way of life and the leaders we continue to have. Mr. Weston expressing the desire to keep charging forward in the work. That's encouraging. Mr. Ames, who had a stroke two weeks ago and yet was bound and determined to to go to Kansas City. Surely it would be more comfortable for him to be home and around and resting this weekend, but he's charging ahead. The point is, Joshua and Caleb can remind us and help us to take courage by looking at others' examples who have gone before. We need that. We need that, and we're going to need it more in the future. Number three, another example of a individual in that period in this story is Phineas. Let's turn over to Numbers chapter 25. Numbers chapter 25. And just to quickly sum up this portion, this is a very uh, discouraging, disheartening portion of the story. As Mr. Strain mentioned, the golden calf is also a, a uh, just a discouraging part of the story. But here again, the Many Israelites had fallen into idolatry and immorality. And uh, we find then verse 4, Numbers 25, The Lord said to Moses, Take all the leaders of the people and hang the offenders before the Lord out in the sun, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. So Moses said to the judges of Israel, Every one of you kill his men who were joined to Baal of Peor. You know, this is an important piece of the puzzle here. Phineas didn't go rogue, just sort of looking around who he could stab with a spear. Uh, Moses had said, look, the death penalty is on those who, who defied God and sought to bring this, this, uh, this kind of activity into the, into the congregation. 
So indeed, verse 6, one of the children of Israel came and presented to his brethren a Midianite woman in the sight of Moses and in the sight of all the congregation of the children of Israel who were weeping at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Verse 7, now when Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw it, he rose from among the congregation and took a javelin in his hand and he went after the man of Israel into the tent and thrust both of them through the man of Israel and the woman through her body. So the plague was stopped among the children of Israel, and those who died in the plague were 24,000. And it says a little bit later in verse 10 onward, God was, was pleased by the action taken by Phineas and, and blessed him for that. Now, <clears throat> what is the lesson? Start taking... A javelin throwing lessons? No. Let's, let's understand, you know, what, what the lesson is and what it's not. The point is that Phineas was valiant for the truth. Dr. Meredith had an article, I think it was back in Global, with that title about Phineas. Valiant for the truth. He was in a certain position. He was faced with a situation where action was needed, and he stepped up. What's the lesson for us? There are times when in our walk, in our own walk, in examining our lives, we need to take action, and sometimes even drastic action, as we heard in a sermonette here some time ago. You know, our lives are based on patterns. Sometimes we get into bad patterns. Sometimes we need to overcome that inertia and do something different. Let's turn over to Matthew chapter 5 and verse 27. These days of unleavened bread are, are about growing and overcoming. And sometimes that means we have to take big action to overcome the pattern. Christ brought that out in Matthew 5 and verse 27. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say, verse 28, Matthew chapter 5, to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you, for it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. Verse 30, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, cast it from you, for it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. Now, was Jesus saying he wanted a lot of people who are going around with one eye and one hand? No, I don't think so. No, I'm, I'm positive he didn't. What he was saying is if something is keeping you from giving your all to God, it's got to go. It's got to go. We have to forsake that desire or that action or that need. We think it's a need, want, desire in order to choose the kingdom. What are some things that we get caught up in? Maybe we're too influenced by the media. Maybe that's filling our mind too much. <clears throat> Maybe we decide I'm going to cut the cord. Well, actually, that metaphor doesn't work anymore, does it? Because everybody's wireless. Okay, maybe uh, maybe we need to disconnect. Okay, that's a better <clears throat> significant metaphor. Maybe we need to change a habit. Maybe too much tech time is robbing me of Bible study time or prayer time. You know how it works. You know how the Internet is designed to drag you in a little bit more. There's always one more thing to see. There's always one more thing to click on. There's always one more text to respond to. It it works that way. It's built that way. The founders have come out and explained, and some of them regret that it works that way. And yet we can get drawn up into that. Now, maybe we don't need to throw our tech in the garbage, but maybe we need to set reasonable boundaries on it and hold to that. Maybe we're unduly influenced by friends who 
pull us into harmful behavior or attitudes. Maybe we need to take a hard look at who our friends are and analyze, are they going in the same direction I want to go? Christ said sometimes the truth would separate us from friends or family. Maybe it's an addiction. Maybe it's something that's harmful to us and hurting our relationships. Maybe that big change is finally admitting and opening up about it and openly talking about it with a few who are close to us, who we can trust or minister. You know, addictions thrive in the dark. And we feel shame because of them. But the first step is shining the light on it and figuring out how a strategy to overcome it and setting up barriers and hedges so we don't go near it. Having, having close friends that help keep us accountable. Maybe now's the time. Maybe it's not a glaring sin, but maybe we just want our relationships to work better. Maybe we want our finances to come out better. Maybe we want our job to go better, our life to go better. Maybe we need to ask God to teach us and show us where we need to take action. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Paul said, he's talking about godly sorrow and he said sometimes we need to get a little upset about things that are holding us back from going all out giving our all to god second corinthians 7 and verse 10 godly sorrow produces repentance leading salvation not to be regretted the sorrow of the world produces death again only two choices we're either going towards god or we're going towards the world Verse 11, for observe this very thing that you sorrowed in a godly manner, what diligence it produced in you, what clearing of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what vehement desire, what zeal, what vindication. In all things you proved yourselves to be clear in this matter. Maybe we need to be a little bit like Phineas in our personal lives. And maybe as Mr. Uh, strain mention it's a process it takes time it's a long-term commitment but sometimes we need a jump start don't we sometimes we need to hook up the cables to the battery to get it to start the car is there anything in our life that needs a phineas again not not toward each other but ourselves first corinthians chapter 5 and verse 7 what are these days about verse 7 first corinthians chapter 5 therefore purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump since you are truly are unleavened for indeed christ our passover was sacrificed for us therefore let us keep the feast not with old leaven nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness And all the things that drag us back into Egypt and all the things that take us away from God, take us toward death, but rather with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. The last one we'll look at in this story, last individual, number four, is the eternal. The eternal. Now you say, that's not fair. That's not a human being. Well, that's partly correct. He became a human being, didn't he? And he was the one who walked with them at that time, guided them. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 1, I'll just refer to it. We've read it this morning. The one who went with them, that rock who led them, was Christ. The eternal who was with them, who was guiding Moses, who was guiding Joshua and Caleb, who was guiding Phineas, that was the being who became Christ. Now, what was he thinking as they were wandering and, and he was testing them? 
and giving them challenges to, to find out where their thoughts were. Deuteronomy chapter 5 and verse 29. What was the eternal trying to do? Verse uh, Deuteronomy chapter 5 and verse 29. Here is sort of an interesting little glimpse into the thoughts of God, the thoughts of the eternal, the ever-living one who became Jesus Christ. He said, verse 29, Oh, that they had such a heart in them that they would fear me and always keep all my commandments, that it might be well with them and with their children forever. He was deeply desiring that the Israelites would get it, would understand there are two ways, and I want you to choose the right way, and I want you to go all in. Nothing held back. Deuteronomy chapter 10 and verse 12. Deuteronomy chapter 10 and verse 12. What is, you know, is, is God demanding something unreasonable, something unattainable, something impossible? Absolutely not. Deuteronomy 10 verse 12. Now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God? to walk in all His ways, to love Him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments of the Lord and His statutes, which I command you today for your good. Indeed, heaven and the highest heavens belong to the Lord your God, also the earth with all that is in it. The Lord delighted only in your fathers to love them, and He chose your descendants, their descendants after them to you, above all people, as it is to this day. He was the one who fed them. He was the one who led them. Verse 20, you shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him. Verse 21, he is your praise. He is your God who has done for you these great and awesome things which your eyes have seen. Again, as we heard this morning, the wonders, the miracles, He never dropped the ball. He never let them down. Yes, He allowed them to be tested, but for the purpose for them to be forced to see the choice between good and evil, right and wrong. Give and get and choose the right. And then this being became a man, became flesh, and did what? Turn over to Philippians chapter 2. What did he do when he became flesh, walked this earth? Well, he gave his all, didn't he? He gave his all for his creation, for bringing, for the plan of bringing many sons to glory. Philippians 2 and verse 5, Paul says, Let this mind be in you, which also was in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, or did not consider it to be something to be held on to. He was willing to let go of the position and the glory and the power he had at the Godhead, at the throne of the Father. He was willing to do that, for our sake, for the plan's sake, for the fact, for the possibility of bringing many sons to glory and in working that out. And he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of man and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. And, and just as we've heard explained many times, just being a human being was humbling. Just being in the flesh was giving his all, wasn't it? After being a God being at the third heaven, just becoming like us, a clay model, he was all in. He was committed. Nothing held back. He was God in the flesh. 
He was a real man. He really suffered. He really was tempted. He was absolutely all in. And then he gave the ultimate sacrifice. He humbled himself, verse 8, and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him, given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven, those on earth, those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There's only one way. And that is that every knee will bow to Jesus Christ, the Savior of all mankind. Why does God want us to give our all to serve Him? Because Christ gave His all for us. You know, in a committed marriage relationship... As Mr. Strain explained not long ago, God wants those that He is committed to. He wants He's jealous, not jealous in a in a way that we understand, um, not in a selfish, obsessive way we think of that word, but He wants to be without rival. That there is nobody that stands in the way of our relationship with Him. That He comes first no matter what. And isn't that appropriate for any committed marriage relationship? That both individuals, both parties, are absolutely number one in the eyes of the other. How could it work any other way? How could Jesus Christ and God give everything for us and then we give 50% back to them, or 70%. Or maybe we go up to, you know, 90, 95. We'll we'll be generous. We give 95.5%. When they've given everything, it's only right that we would have the same loyalty and devotion and unconditional absolute commitment to Him to the Father and to Jesus Christ as they have for us. Romans chapter 12. Notice in Romans chapter 12, and the amazing thing is that if we are willing, Christ will not only, not only gave his all in his life and not only gave his all at his death, but will live in us, will live his life over in us and will help us along our way as we strive to give our all to God. Romans chapter 12 and verse 1, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Is there anything unreasonable about what God is asking us to do, putting Him first above all else? No, it's our reasonable service. Do not be conformed to this world, But be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. The days of unleavened bread are about being transformed. And we can't do it on our own power. We can't do it on our own strength. And that's one of the reasons why we've been eating unleavened bread for seven days. To understand and to continue to to teach ourselves and remind ourselves we've got to feed on something else, someone else that gives us the ability, gives us the change, gives us the help that we need. In the book, The Power of Followership, author Robert Kelly talks about the mentor relationship and what it means and how it's structured. And we hear a lot about mentors uh, these days. Uh, But think about our relationship with Christ when I read this. He says, whereas the goal of apprenticeship is the mastery of skills, the goal of mentoring is personal maturation. People who follow a mentor do so for personal benefit. They may simply see the mentoring relationship as a way of bettering themselves. Followers entrust themselves, entrust themselves emotionally 
and developmentally to someone who perceives their talents as perhaps a diamond in the rough. Now, we're clay models, right? We're not yet diamonds in the rough. But with God's Holy Spirit in us, now we have the most valuable commodity in the universe. And God is making something very special out of us. The mentor helps shape the diamond so that it sparkles. The the psychological readiness of an individual to benefit from this form of followership depends upon the individual's ability to surrender to the mentor's influence. Think about that. Oftentimes, some experience in life, the death of a loved one, getting fired from a job, triggers this readiness, this dependence on another. Like apprentices, mentees choose to be followers to help transform themselves. You know, brethren, our goal is to give our all. It doesn't come easy. It doesn't come without a struggle. It doesn't come all at once. But as long as we are willing, God makes up the rest, doesn't he? Let's turn over to John chapter 5. John chapter 5, we read this at Passover a few days ago. It's interesting that he, Christ was talking to the disciples about the bread, and then they brought up the manna, and he said, I'm sorry, in John chapter 6, and verse 32, Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, But my Father gives you the true bread from heaven, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Verse 38, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Notice in verse 54, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. My flesh is food indeed, my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. Jesus Christ is willing to live his life in us again. As he tells the story here, there there were many who walked away after that point. What were their reasons? It doesn't say. But many did not follow him anymore. And notice what Jesus said, verse 66. From that time, many of his disciples went back, walked with him no more. And Jesus said to the twelve, Do you also want to go away? But Simon Peter answered him and said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. This is the only way, isn't it? Not by our own efforts, not by our own steam, not by ourselves. We don't have what it takes. But when Christ lives in us, it makes all the difference in the world. You know, brethren, as we heard this morning, nothing can keep us from overcoming and conquering. When when God is behind us, when he is helping us, As long as we keep going, as long as we keep cooperating with him, as long as we keep willing to be humbled, as long as we keep learning from others' examples who have gone before and been courageous, as long as we are willing to take action to overcome ourselves, and as long as we keep asking Christ to live his life in us, In the end, if we give all for God, what does he give us? Hebrews chapter 2. Let's look over in Hebrews chapter 2. Is there any reward? Is it worth it? Does it matter? Is there something at the end? Is there something to look forward to? Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 5. For he has not put the world to come of which we speak in subjection to angels, but one testified in a certain place saying, What is man that you are mindful of him? Why does God even notice us 
were specks of dust, were not even as big as specks of dust, were microscopic. He has to look at us through a spiritual microscope or however that works. You have made him a little lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor. You've set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we do not yet see all things put under him. And we understand this is talking about the entire creation, the entire universe. Is God going to give us his all? Are we going to inherit the entire universe? There's plenty of reason for us to give our all to God, isn't there? Let's be encouraged as we close these days of unleavened bread, the things we've learned, the things we've talked about, even when we have insecurities, that God is there and he's going to back us up if we look to him. As we look at other, other examples and as we commit to purging out sin in our life, let's make sure... We go forward, as we heard this morning, letting Christ live in us to give us focus, to give us clarity, to cleanse us, to help us to go all out, all the way to the end, brethren. What a tremendous opportunity we have this day, these days, going forward. Let's give God our all.